Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. As 18-year-olds across the country prepare for their first year of college, 17-year-olds are gearing up for their senior year of high school with the prospect of college applications looming on the horizon. Soon, campuses across the country will be offering tours to prospective students touting their unique histories, varied extracurricular opportunities, and academic offerings. For Jewish prospective students, not to mention their parents, additional questions may come up. Does this school have a Hillel? Does the dining hall offer kosher food? And what's the campus attitude toward Israel? Joining us this week in AJC's Learner Media Center are Laura Adkins and Aidan Pink, two up-and-coming journalists at The Forward, who have, for the second straight year, put together a comprehensive campus guide to answer all the questions a Jewish family might have about colleges across the country. Laura, Aidan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So you just released the second edition of the Forward's College Guide. Why is this kind of a guide necessary? It's a good question. Um, I remember we both came up with the idea independently. Um, I remember when my brother was a senior in high school looking for colleges. There are lots of great guides out there, both, you know, U.S. News and World Report dealing with secular issues as well as, you know, Hillel International puts out a good guide every year. Um, but there wasn't sort of a comprehensive source that uh, explained everything having to do with Jewish life on campus, uh, having to do with Greek life, having to do with kosher food and the quality of kosher food, not just its presence, having to do with possibly anti-Semitism or anti-Israel activity on campus. And so we decided and independently and then working together as a team that coming up with uh, a resource for Jewish students and their family members and Jewish educators um, to provide as much information as possible about the hundreds of uh, great universities out there that Jewish students could apply to uh, would be something that uh, people would benefit from and find helpful. And so far, uh, it seems like that's been the case. Now, you just rattled off quite a few different types of parameters by which you might assess schools, uh, kosher food and, and tasty food and Jewish Greek life and you know any number of other things like that. How did you decide on what the right metrics would be to assess these schools? So it was definitely a long process, and it's a process that's still evolving. Our algorithm this year actually includes an entirely new category of safety variables. I think the biggest thing that we were looking at when designing the algorithm is keeping in mind both Jewish factors and things that parents and students were telling us actually mattered to them. Safety is a big one. LGBT safety in particular, a lot of people wrote in that our guide didn't feature enough of last year, so we added that as a safety factor. But we really tried to be both as comprehensive and non-reactionary as possible, but also put together variables that would speak to both secular and orthodox students and everyone in between alike. Now, you you just made allusion to a few new things. But that kind of leads me to the question of, you know, what changed between year one and two? And what did you learn from your first year's guide that informed how you changed it in year two? 
I'll speak to the new factors first, and then Aiden can tell you a little bit about um, some of the new schools and non-numeric factors that we added. Um, in terms of new factors that affected the ranking algorithm itself, we added more of an emphasis, 5% more of an emphasis on financial factors. A lot of people told us that that was one of the most important things to them. So financial factors this year comprised 15% of the algorithm. Really getting in touch with the early socialist roots of the forward here. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, 34% of the points and 40% if you count the anti-Semitism variable, which we put in the new safety category, goes to Jewish life factors. Um, nothing to do with Israel, just services, kosher food. 20% is those Israel-related factors. And then 20% is academic factors, such as the selectivity of the institution and also things like the student-faculty ratio, which impact the academic quality of the institution. So academics have, has the same weighting in the guide as the Israel situation on campus. Yeah. I mean, I think that for us, the emphasis for a college guide should really be on the parts that are going to form the core of your college experience, not just your social life. Um, definitely BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions comprised a full nine points out of 100 because a lot of Jewish students feel that that movement is very detrimental to their college experience. But at the same time, we have a lot of readers who may not be so pro-Israel and still very much want a strong Jewish experience and a strong academic experience. The other thing I'd add is that last year when the guide came out, there were so many people, both students and alumni, who said, hey, how come our university isn't featured? So we did our best to add them. We're now up to 215 schools. Um, last year we're at 171 or so. Um, and the other thing is that we realized last year that a lot of it was very data-heavy, which is very helpful, but we were missing the voices of students themselves. So last year, we instituted a student survey. We got a lot of great responses from students all over the country, both those who are highly active in Hillel and Chabad and other Jewish student groups, as well as those who are just Jewish and do their own thing that not necessarily tied to the organized Jewish community on campus. And getting their perspectives, not just about Jewish life, but also about their classes and also about, you know, dealing with university administration and financial aid and things like that, uh, we think will be really helpful to prospective uh, students and their families, as well as giving us more information about what it's like being a college student now, because although we were in college relatively recently, things change every year and we're hoping to track those trends. You know, I really have to say 215 schools, you know, all this thought that goes into it, it really is an incredibly impressive undertaking. We'll link to it in the show notes and people should definitely check it out if you have, you know, a young person in your life. I should say I loved seeing my alma mater, Columbia, in the top 10. A lot of people, not me, mind you, but a lot of people have long worried that Columbia isn't a good place to be a Jewish student. With this ranking, you are very clearly rejecting that claim, and not just for Columbia, by the way, but for Brown, UCLA, Berkeley, Tufts, Rutgers, several other prominent schools across the country. Why are the people who say that those schools aren't good for Jews, why are those people wrong? Well, our operating philosophy is that there's no such thing as a school that's bad for Jews. Um, there are universities at which anti-Semitism has occurred, sometimes troublingly frequently, but that doesn't mean that a Jewish student there can't have a positive experience despite that. 
I think also a lot of maybe some of the other guides and articles that focus on campus life only focus on what they see as the terrible things and not the great things because great stories are boring, you know. We like to talk about the anti-Semitism, about the anti-Israel stuff, but we were really trying to be non-reactionary and and take into account not just the flash pan news that impacts students, but the comprehensive picture of what happens on campus. Also, one thing that we really saw this year when we adjusted our algorithm, we originally last year, if any boycott movement had ever been brought up in the student um, council, we penalized a school for that. But because the attrition rate at universities is 25% a year, We now only look at the past four years when we're determining whether or not BDS is a problem on campus. So you see Berkeley is a great example. They actually have not had a boycott movement be brought up in the last four years. So we would think that that's a positive thing for Jewish students. And finally, it's not necessarily popular opinion, but a lot of times these anti-Israel groups are half populated by Jewish students. And although they are definitely still in the minority in our community, they are people we want to speak to with this guide as well. I think you're right that it's not a popular opinion. But there is one thing that you said in particular that I, I want to pick up on because I think it's so important. And I talk about this a lot. You know, I, I don't often mention on the podcast, but my day job when I'm not sitting here uh, for us in front of this microphone, um, I, I oversee young leadership at AJC, which includes our campus affairs department. Um, so this is an area of some expertise for me as well. One of the things that I often say when I'm speaking to groups of parents and grandparents mostly who, who aren't right there on campus is that there's nothing sexy about a Shabbat dinner, is that you may have 500 students come together for a Shabbat dinner on campus, and earlier in that week, you may have had 15 students come together waving Palestinian flags and chanting about, you know, Israel is an apartheid state and all kinds of other slanders like that. And the one that's going to make headlines more often than not are those 15 radical students rather than the 500 coming together for Shabbat dinner. And I think that that reflects, you know, a, a misalignment of priorities. And I'm grateful for, um, you know, whatever this uh, this guide can do to kind of help put the proper emphasis on those two different things. Um, another thing that came to mind is, you know, how do you avoid familiarity bias? How do you, uh, you know, you're two journalists, you're also two human beings. How do you avoid, you know, the urge to maybe rank what you know, the schools that you went to, the schools that you visited your friends at or siblings at to rank those higher? I think this is kind of a perpetual problem when you live in the community that you cover. Jewish journalists, by and large, are actively members in the community that they're trying to objectively report on. I think avoiding bias entirely is impossible no matter whether you're a researcher at a university or a journalist at a newspaper. But one thing that is very important to me dealing with the algorithm is we don't run any of the rankings or calculations until we've built the entire model. So we actually don't know until we press sort whether or not our universities are going to rank highly. This year, we were definitely pleasantly surprised that I'm an alma mater of NYU and Aiden of American University. We were pleasantly surprised by the rankings they received, but we really do our best to keep the algorithm blind to things like that. 
and there's no subjective element to this. There's no, you know, if if two schools are kind of close to one another, you don't kind of juice that at all and say, you know, like the smell test here says that this is a better school for Jews. Not at all. I mean, we, we combine the objective and the subjective. Objectively, we have the numbers, we have the data, and we're very confident that those numbers are accurate and will help uh, people who read the guide. But subjectively, we also have submissions from students, from uh, Hillel and Chabad campus professionals who are able to provide, obviously, their bias that they love their school, um, but they're able to give a little bit more detail. And, you know, we separate that from the ranking and, and the list that we create. But knowing what professionals and fellow students have to say about a school is important as well. There is definitely a subjective nature in how I build the algorithm. Um, for example, it could be seen as very arbitrary that BDS counts for 9% of the formula. And we just have to kind of take a step back and choose the things that we think are the most important. But the sorting of the algorithm itself is, is objective. And I think, frankly, that most lists out there probably weight the Israel factors even higher than than you do. And I, I think they deserve to be to be weighted. Certainly, I think that that's something very important uh, that has a real impact on Jewish student life and spillover into other areas as well. But you know, I, I certainly wouldn't go higher than than the twenty percent that you do. And and so I think that you're doing good work to kind of put it in its place a little bit. Now, I, I want to lay all my cards out on the table and let you know that I've always been opposed to the idea of ranking colleges for Jewish students. First, because I think I'm someone who venerates academic success. So to me, the best schools for Jews are just the best schools, period. But I also object on strategic grounds. In 2016, in the wake of a few scandals about Israel at UCLA, the Hillel director there, uh, Rabbi Aaron Lerner, wrote an op-ed in the LA Jewish Journal, which we can also link to in the show notes, which I find instructive. He made the point that if people want UCLA to be the best school possible for Jewish students, then people should be encouraging Jewish students to attend, not discouraging them with hyperbolic terms like calling it unsafe for Jews. At the same time, it's certainly true that some schools are better positioned to offer a positive Jewish experience to students. Now, I, I can tell from our conversation and from the list that you guys have done your best to weed out any kind of hyperbole or anything like that. But do you take any steps to avoid scaring students away from even the schools that you don't rank highly? So I think the just from the very outset, every single school of the 200-something that are on our list, we consider great schools for Jews. We don't, like some other publications, have a list that demonizes certain schools. Um, we're also very transparent with the formula. It's all on each college profile, what we're looking at. But there is definitely a bias. I mean, in our guide, you'll see there's a bias towards elite universities. Part of that is because these universities have the sizable endowments to make it affordable for every student. Part of that is because a lot of these schools have done a lot of work to build Jewish communities because they have the money and resources to do so. It's Ranking is hard. Anytime you rank a list, it's going to offend some people. It's going to make some people excited. But I don't think, despite the methodological issues with ranking things in general, that it's not still a fun and worthwhile enterprise. The one thing that I would add is that both Laura and I are from the Midwest. I'm from Minnesota. She's from Missouri. And uh, what we learned when we moved to New York is that many Jews who have lived in New York their entire life are astonished, A, that there's thriving Jewish life in the Midwest, and B, that there's thriving Jewish life at universities in the Midwest. 
I'm learning two new things right now. (laughs) And what we've discovered through making this guide, uh, although it confirmed what we thought we knew, we have it now based in data, um, is that there are great universities in the Midwest, in the South, um, in the Rocky Mountain region, at universities in which there are only 600 students altogether. Um, Jews are not a monolith, as everyone who's listening to this knows. And there are some Jews who will thrive at big state schools. There are some Jews who will thrive at elite Ivy League universities. There will some Jews who, frankly, will thrive when they're one of only 10 Jews in the student body. And so we wanted to make sure that no matter what type of Jew you are, our guide provides resources for you and will hopefully point you in the direction of a university or many universities that will serve you well in some of the most important years of your life. We also um, took an effort both this year and last year to make a few kind of more niche lists for certain communities. For example, to me, Modern Orthodox students um, have a little bit more difficult time on a campus if there's not specific infrastructure in place, like kosher food, like a thriving Orthodox community. Um, So we made a sub-list of the best schools for Orthodox Jews, but also the best schools for Israel, the best scores for Jewish life, best for financial features. So we're trying to speak to those subgroups as well. Aiden, a moment ago, you mentioned your own personal experiences, both coming from the Midwest. So I'm curious, having now worked for two years on this list, you guys both came out of the Midwest. You both, however many years ago, made the decision to go to Eastern Seaboard schools. Have you learned more about the schools that are in Minnesota, that are in Missouri, that, you know, if you were to do it all over again, you see more, you know, avenues for you there closer to home? I, I have no idea what factors went into your college decisions, but but I'm, I'm curious what you personally have learned. Um, I think what the most surprising thing to me to learn was that universities in the South particularly really want more Jewish students. And the administrations themselves are working very hard, uh, hand-in-hand with Jewish institutions in places like Charleston, South Carolina, and Dallas and Houston, to draw more Jewish students through scholarships specifically for Jews, through having people in their admissions department who are tasked with recruiting more Jews. Uh, You know, they want to diversify uh, their student body, as I'm sure every university does, but they also recognize the unique value that a strong Jewish community has, not just on their university, but on the city as a whole. What's the best complaint that you've gotten about your list? You know, it's, 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 it's brand new this year, but, but maybe last year's list. My favorite one is always, there's always a few parents, which good for them for trying, will always send me an email, hey, can you just send me the Excel spreadsheet you used to uh, calculate this data? And Quite frankly, it takes, you know, over a year of work to build this algorithm. So the answer is a polite no. But it's <laughs> it's always I like that parents are really trying to get as comprehensive a picture of both the process and the data as possible. Um, I'm the person on our team who most frequently reaches out to Hillel and Chabad campus professionals themselves to get information about Jewish life at their universities. And frequently, both this year and last year after publication day, I'll get emails from many of these people saying, how come you didn't include uh, X, Y, and Z? And I said, well, I emailed you multiple times. Make sure to check your email next time. (laughs) So if there are any Hillel and Chabad campus professionals, please watch out for emails from the forward. It's really important for us and hopefully for you. Um, last question, what do you guys hope Jewish students and parents will take away from your list? I think there's two things for me personally. One, most of the Jewish community is concentrated on the East Coast. And I want people to understand that there's Jewish life 
outside of the East Coast and peruse schools that may not have even been on their radar. I know for me, when I was looking at colleges, even in Missouri, I just kind of went down the U.S. News and World Reports list looking for schools. And I hope that people diversify kind of the way that they approach this decision-making process. I think also it's important to realize, and hopefully they will through the guide, that the type of Jewish experience that you have will be uh, very much shaped by the type of university you go to. For example, one of my favorite facts that I learned is that um, at Purdue University, which is, of course, has a very strong engineering program. Boilermakers. Yes, that's right. And one of the programs that the Hillel offers is uh, Jews making a Mars rover. Um, at Carnegie Mellon, another engineering school, um, they have a club uh, that is the Jewish Futurist Club, where they answer questions like, if ask Jewish ask astronauts make it to Mars, which direction will they pray and how do they know that it's Shabbat? Um, at the University of Miami, there's a, a club called Ola Hillel for Jews from uh, Spanish-speaking countries. Um, so because the Jewish community is so diverse and is increasingly diversifying, um, it's important to know and hopefully for the students to build for themselves when they arrive at university. All of the different ways in which their lives, both Jewishly and generally, can be enriched depending on which university they go to. Laura Adkins, Aiden Pink, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? A deal with Hamas. Good for the Jews? A new ceasefire deal has emerged between Israel and the terror group Hamas, which governs in the Gaza Strip. The deal features six main components, which will be implemented in stages. First, a comprehensive ceasefire, followed gradually by a relaxing of some of the tight land and sea restrictions for Gazans, new medical and humanitarian aid, a resolution to the issue of Israel's captive soldiers, missing civilians, and Palestinian prisoners, a broad reconstruction of Gaza's infrastructure with foreign funding, and discussions about constructing sea and airports in Gaza. The deal was brokered by the Egyptian government and by friend of AJC passport Nikolai Mladenov, the UN special coordinator for the Middle East peace process. Now, history suggests that we'll be lucky if the ceasefire holds for very long. Reaching some of the later steps in the agreement anytime soon may be too much to hope for. But still, the violence seems to have abated for now without the need for a military operation on the scale of what Israel has previously been forced to carry out. Now we must all hope that the fragile ceasefire holds. A peaceful resolution to this summer's annual flare-up of the conflict with Gaza? Well, that would certainly be good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.